Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we, um, we come to you now to listen, to hear your voice and your word. As we explain these words that you have written and, and put on these pages for us to, to see and to understand, to gain by, to obey. Father, we pray that you would change us. We pray that you would mold us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that your Spirit would fill us and that you would be honored and exalted, that Jesus Christ would be magnified above all else, and that he would be supreme in our lives, that he would be supreme in our words and our thoughts, that he would be supreme in the things that we look at, that he would be supreme in every action of our lives because he's worthy. And so we pray that you would show us and help us to understand these things. Help us to see our own sin and help us to see the way that you've provided out of, out of temptation. Please teach us now, we pray. Amen. You know, I, I found it very heartening to have had some conversations with a few of you this week and to hear you, you growing in your faith, to hear the opportunities of, of what God's doing in, in your lives. Uh, some of you have been diving into some deep theology and asking some questions uh, about various doctrinal issues. I know some of our, our topics, um, as we've been going through Hebrews, you've been thinking about angels, and there's some of you that have been, been asking some questions there, and, and you're searching the Scriptures for those things, and I, I'm just encouraged by that. Uh, I, I'm encouraged to hear those of you who have been um, reading uh, the book of, of uh, John this week and, and Luke, and, and just to see how that's, that's challenging your understanding of Jesus and your growing and your love for Him. Hebrews and Matthew is making you think about how, what God teaches us about angels, about their roles, and some of you are just finding encouragement as you've, as you've been um, just studying the Scripture uh, and, and various other things. And I've talked with a few, a few of you writing, regarding a few different issues, and I'm just encouraged. Uh, and, and I've heard some of the conversations that some of you are having about the book of Hebrews itself and how it's, it's stretching you. And that's good. That, that's really good. Hebrews should stretch us, and we should be willing to be stretched by God's Word. But let me just encourage you to press on, to keep, to keep pursuing those growth opportunities. With the book of Hebrews, I know that Hebrews can be a little challenging, and we're, we're biting off some big chunks here, but, but I believe that, that you are capable of, of grasping its truths, especially with the Holy Spirit illuminating His Word and illuminating uh, the truth before you. Um, and I believe you're capable of grasping its truths and, and that you have the ability to discipline yourself to listen to its message by God's grace. You know, last week we flew through chapter 1 of Hebrews, and I understand that we covered quite a bit, uh, and, and we were in the Old Testament a lot. Uh, and actually, we, we, really, we didn't just fly through Hebrews chapter 1, but we flew through Hebrews chapter 1, five psalms, uh, the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy, and through the Davidic Covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So we actually went through eight chapters of, of Scripture. That has to be a record for DeWitt Evangelical Free Church. Um, this morning, uh, we've come to a simpler and a shorter passage. But before we dive into these four verses, I think it would be helpful for us just to do a quick refresher of where we've come from so far, and particularly just to look at last week's content a little bit again. Um, the book of Hebrews, if you remember, is a sermon. It's a sermon. It was probably preached by the author of this book at some point, whether that author was Apollos or Paul or, or Stephen. Or, well, it wouldn't have been Stephen, but I'm just throwing names out now. But um, uh, whoever wrote the book of, of Hebrews, it, it was a sermon to start with. And then he, after preaching it at some point, put it into the form of a letter that was sent to a church. And this church probably was a small church that existed in Italy, uh, we think, uh, very likely perhaps in Rome. And this church had a very high Jewish population within it. And so the original recipients of this letter, they, they were familiar with their Old Testament. And so when you see all these passages from the Old Testament throughout the book of Hebrews, sometimes that challenges us because we're not quite as familiar with the Old Testament as these original hearers would have been. And... Um, and so I, I think that they would, have, um, they would have been very familiar with a lot of these passages, and they probably knew a lot of them by heart, uh, particularly the passages that we covered last week. And I know that um, last week was kind of like drinking from a, a fire hydrant, but, um, 
in these first four verses, we find um, a challenge to us. And it was a challenge that was very important for this church that was receiving this book of Hebrews. Because you see, this church was filled with people who were being tempted to walk away from it all. They had people from the outside and possibly people from within that were still searching themselves and asking some questions. But people that were saying, walk away from this Jesus stuff. Come back to the works of the law. Come back to Judaism and, and back to everything that you used to love here because this is really better than what this Jesus apparently offers to you. And some of the newer people in this church had probably heard the good news about Jesus and were convinced intellectually, but they hadn't made a decision of the heart that, that they were willing to let go of something else in their life. Uh, for many, that would have been the belief that following the law of Moses was what was going to save them, and, and they weren't ready to let go of that. There were some people connected to this church who probably still hadn't decided regarding Jesus. They were hearing the arguments, they were considering it, but they weren't even intellectually convinced yet, but they were listening. And for the most part, though, this congregation... Uh, had probably made a decision to turn from their sin and to believe in Jesus, and they had been following Him for some time, uh, for, for probably a couple decades for some of them, and many of those uh, had, become, had become comfortable in their Christianity. Too comfortable. And so the author of Hebrews writes a, this sermon-slash-letter demonstrating that Jesus is superior. Jesus is greater this Jesus was crucified, and the one who rose from the grave is more superior to anything else that they are being tempted to worship instead. Hebrews is a message to people who have tested the truth. They have experienced in one way or another how excellent it is, the person that we call Jesus. And Hebrews was the encouragement that they needed to keep on pressing on. For those who are still putting off that decision, like to, to follow Jesus like some of you are. Uh, Hebrews, uh, Hebrews was a message that demonstrated with finality that Jesus, that there, with Jesus there is really no comparison to anything else in this life that you can choose besides Christ. And so this book begins with this beautiful introduction reminding, reminding us that God has spoken not only in the prophets long ago when they spoke to the forefathers, but now in this age, in these last times, He has also spoken to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the Word of His power. And so, as we've talked about, like the spokes on a wheel, uh, what, what the author is going to do is he's going to keep on coming back to this hub in the center of it, which is, which is this idea that Jesus is superior. Jesus is greater. Jesus is better. And then he's going to make this, his argument to show how Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is superior. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is superior. Jesus is greater than Joshua and the high priests. Jesus is superior. You get the idea, right? And so he's going to follow these spokes out on this wheel and, and this argument of why Jesus is greater than Moses. Why Jesus is greater than the angels. But he's always going to come back to that central hub of, of Jesus is superior and He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our obedience. He's worthy that you follow Him and choose Him. Last week, we, we've been following that first spoke in chapter 1 of, that the author of Hebrews used. Uh, he, he used this rabbinic method that we called stringing pearls. We pictured this necklace that was being created and, and each of these pearls being strung onto this necklace. And, and he, makes this, he makes this statement that Jesus has inherited a name more excellent than all of the angels. And then he takes seven pearls, one at a time, Seven Old Testament passages that support his argument that Jesus is greater than the angels. And he strings those pearls. And each pearl is just one verse from the Old Testament from various passages. One verse from those Old Testament texts. But, but the thing is, is that as he strings those pearls, he's not just quoting a text from the Bible and giving you a whole bunch of proof texts. He's doing that too. But he, he's also expecting you to know the context of the entire passage of those verses. And so if you're a good Hebrew and part of this church and he has those passages memorized already, you know the Song of Moses, you know the Davidic Covenant, you know some of these famous Psalms, they, they would have been familiar and go, okay, I know that verse. That's right next to this one and this one and this one. At the beginning of that starts with that. But if you don't know those passages, the author of Hebrews expects you to do your homework and to explore 
the full context of each one of those passages so that you really grasp the, the depth of what he's saying in his argument that Jesus is greater than these angels. And that each pearl isn't just that little nugget that's strung on that string, but it contains so much more. And like we said last week, those seven pearls were presented in pairs of two. And then the seventh one was a quote that finished off the beauty of this entire necklace. And through chapter 1, Hebrews shows us that Jesus is superior. He has a superior position than the angels. No angel has ever been invited to sit at the right hand of God the Father. But Jesus completed His work and He does sit there as King. Hebrews shows us that Jesus is superior and has superior honor than all the angels. No angel is granted the honor of being worshipped. But Jesus is. And Hebrews shows us that Jesus has a superior existence to all of the angels. All of them, what are they? They're messengers. They're created beings. They are finite. They, they exist within time and space, although they're maybe a little smarter, a little bit bigger, a little faster than we are. Um, I don't know how all that works. We're not given too many glimpses of that. But the glimpses that we are given, we see that they're pretty extraordinary. But even within that, they are still confined to, to, to space and time just like we are. And they're created beings. But Jesus Himself created the entire universe. He has no beginning. He has no end. He was there when He created all things. And He's going to be there when He rolls it up like a garment that has met its purpose and it's done. And He creates everything new. But then Hebrews concludes by demonstrating that Jesus has superior authority to the angels. Because Jesus is God Himself. And... And he quotes from Psalm 110, which Haley just wrote, read for us, which we're going to come back to that passage several times. That's probably the key passage to the entire book of Hebrews. And so if Hebrews is a, an unpacking of one particular passage like we do, it would be Psalm 110. That's kind of his thesis that he's going to continue to, to hit on. And so we'll be back there. And that brings us today, though, to today's passage, Hebrews chapter 2. And we're only going to cover four verses. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4. And now, we're, keep in mind that we're still on this first spoke. We talked about this wheel and the hub being Jesus is superior. We're talking about how Jesus is, is greater than the angels. And so he's, he's on that, that track of, of why Jesus is superior to the angels. And he's in the middle of this argument that covers all of chapters 1 and 2. But right in the middle of that argument about angels, he's, um, in these four verses, he's going to interrupt the teaching part of his argument of the first two chapters, and he's going to preach at us for four verses. Now, again, what is the genre of Hebrews? What, what, is, what kind of presentation was it before it was written as a letter? It was a sermon. It was a sermon. Hebrews is a sermon, and you know how us preachers get. We like to poke and prod, don't we? We, we like to pick on things. We want to teach and we want to explain the text and, and you know that we can't just let you sit there and be comfortable in those padded chairs though. And so, and so um, you know, we can tell a fun story and we can illustrate what we're teaching with with some great object lessons. We might actually have Cindy come in and put a two liter bottle up here and blow something up in the middle of the sermon just to keep you awake once in a while. If you weren't here, uh, you need to go back and watch that at some point. I think it's on Twitter or something. It's, it's out there. But we're going to make sure that you apply what you're learning. And Hebrews is a sermon. And you all know that at some point, us preachers, as much as we teach and as much as we illustrate, as much as we t tell stories and, and bring object lessons into it, we're going to call you to action. And so like a good preacher, Hebrews is going to push pause on the teaching part and, and it's going to start pushing us around a little bit. Now, one other thing before we read the passage itself and these first four verses. In Hebrews, um, we have what we call, what has come to have been called and, and known as the five warning passages. You might hear that talked about when you study Hebrews a little bit. Five warning passages. And that's going to come up in your study as you read commentaries, as you look at things online. Perhaps you're studying some of this in your footnotes itself. And these first four verses of chapter 2 are the first of those five warning passages. And so as we've been practicing out of respect for God's Word, I'm going to ask you to stand up again as we read just through these first four verses. Please stand for the reading of God's Word once more. He 
He says, therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be, be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Please be seen. You know, I know that 2020 and 2021 were pretty crazy years. It's, it's now the running joke or, or just something that makes us want to cry when we think about it. But, but in the midst of, of everything else, how many of you were following the news last spring? Last March, there was a story in the news about a cargo ship. Everybody know what I'm talking about right away? For those of you, don't, for those of you that don't, there's this cargo ship that got wedged in the Suez Canal. And... If you remember this, a, a container ship, the length of over four football fields. Think about how long that is. How much cargo is on one of those things. It, this, this ship uh, that was you know, some, what, 13, 1,400 feet long, it, uh, it got buffeted by strong winds as it's going through the Suez Canal and traveling on its course, and it, and it drifted. It drifts off course, and, and the whole ship went diagonal, and it gets wedged in the Suez Canal, blocking all traffic that's trying to get from, from, from Asia to Europe and the rest of the world. And so it's going to force all these other ships to go all the way around Africa to get anywhere, kind of like they did a couple hundred years ago. You remember this? And so it went diagonal. It blocks all the traffic in the canal for almost an entire week, and there was there was a line of over 350 other ships that were waiting to get through. It cost the world economy, they said, $9.6 billion of trade. That amounts to $6.7 million every minute. Every minute, $6.7 million was lost every minute that the Ever Given was stuck. I think that probably more than one person lost their job that week. Uh, but this is a picture of what Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 is talking about. That's, that's the illustration that he's bringing to the text and he's painting for us. Verse 1 is the main warning of this passage, and then he's going to explain that warning in verses 2 through 4. But, but this is the commandment that he has for you today and he has for me. We must pay closer attention. We must pay closer attention. The warning itself is a strong one in whatever language you hear it in. But one of the things that you can easily miss in the English is that Hebrews, written in Greek, here it uses a nautical term, a term about boats. There's actually a couple of them in the text. One's pretty obvious. But this phrase that says pay closer attention, that's also a nautical term in the original language that's used with different nuances depending on how you're using the word. And I think he's carrying that nuance into our text and it has this idea of, of bringing a ship into port. Uh, the ancient writer Herodotus talked about people, uh, an army landing on a beach. And, and he uses this word and he says, when, when you come in to the port, and that's the idea of pay closer attention. Um, and, and the reason it, was, it carried both those connotations is what a captain and his crew would do is as they came into a destination, they would let down their sails, they would slow down the boat, and then they would start to, to drop the anchor. And they would, they would drag some and, and they, would, they would navigate the boat and pay close attention to where that boat was going so that it, it didn't go off course and, and crash into a city or, or miss the dock or, or run, on, on, run, um, run, what do you call it, run ashore, run, run aground, thank you. Like, like some others have said, words are hard. Run aground uh, on some reef. And in chapter 6, the author is going to use that anchor term, terminology again. But, but the point of his illustration is this. There, there is a very simple way for a ship to drift off course, to crash into some reef. All that a man has to do in order to bring destruction is just do nothing. Just do nothing. All you have to do is drift. And, and Hebrews says, pay much closer attention to what we have 
heard, lest we drift away from it. Now, a lot of people have asked the question, who is who's he talking to? Who's the audience in this warning? And I think there is a warning here for you if, if you have not responded in faith to Christ. I think there's application here in this passage. If you are not sure about Jesus and you haven't paid attention to what God's Word declares, there is a very easy way to ensure your destruction. Eternal destruction. Just drift. Hope away for the best or put off paying attention to the message that's been declared for, for another 10 years, 20 years, or if you, if you want to, just put it off to the very end. See if you can make it right to the end and then you can just barely get in. That's how a lot of people kind of plan it out. I'll respond to Jesus at the end of my life. And, and, and there, uh, there are some who are just trying to, to drift because they love their sin and they want to pursue that instead. Or they just don't want to pay attention. There are others of you who may be convinced that Jesus is greater. You may, you may come here every Sunday and go, I know He's greater. I know He's superior. I know that He is better than everything else. And I know that He paid for my sins. I know that He died on the cross for my sin. But the thing is, is I love my sin too much and I'm not willing to sacrifice it. I'm not willing to repent. And so, even though I know things intellectually like some of the audience that Hebrews was written to, You love your sin too much. And likewise, the surest way to an eternity that is separated from the living God is just a drift. And I think this warning, uh, there's application there for you. However, while I think that there is application for the lost here in these verses, I, I am of the opinion that Hebrews is addressing Christians here. Too many of us, followers of Jesus Christ, who love Jesus Christ, who have walked with Jesus Christ for years, have gotten comfortable and are drifting. We're not paying attention, and because you're not paying close enough attention, the anchor slipped. And when the wind starts to buffet, you find yourself drastically off course. And you're ending up in a place where you're not paying attention to the truths that we have heard. And my friends, you have to understand that the cost is high. Throughout this whole passage, we've seen that God has spoken to us by His Son. And what we've heard must be paid attention to. The salvation that's mentioned in verse 14 is salvation that's been inherited by you. It's yours. For those of you who are followers of Jesus Christ, you've repented of your sins and turned to Jesus Christ for your salvation. And we must pay attention. He goes beyond that in the text. He says, and not just pay attention, Pay even more attention. Pay closer attention. Uh, this is uh, going off course here a little bit. Speaking of drifting, uh, this is the word that was used when they called out to crucify Jesus. And Pilate got up and he said, "He said, wait, 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 wait." And he tried to reason with the people. And what did they do? Crucify him. And he says, even more, they cried out, crucified him. And you can hear the crowd calling out more and more and more. Now in a different way, okay, that's a negative way of using this term. In a different way, the author of Hebrews says, even more, pay attention. So you think, okay, I kind of pay attention to it. My Bible study is okay. I go to church regularly. I'm, I'm growing a little bit. Maybe not challenging and stretching myself, but... The author of Hebrews challenges you, be careful lest you drift away and even more pay attention. Our Kent Hughes has a good discussion about what brings such drifting. He writes, for one thing, there is the tide of years. You have to live for some length to observe this, but the longer you live, the more you'll see it. Many who were at one time professing fine Christians imperceptibly drifting away from their earlier Excuse me. Um, yeah, many who were one, at one time professing fine Christians imperceptibly drifted away from their earlier better selves. They have kept up appearances, but the years have carried them far away from their devotion. He goes on to speak of the drifting of being familiar with the truth. If you don't pay closer attention, then you can become all too familiar with the truths of God's Word to the point that Christ just becomes commonplace in your life and in your walk with Him. And then he talks about the drifting of busyness. How many of us find ourselves too busy to read, 
too busy to meditate on God's Word, too busy to pray, too busy to love Jesus. And Hughes continues, we who live at the end of the 20th century are busy people and the multiplicity of our cares and duties can overwhelm us. A snowflake is a tiny thing, but when the air is full of them, they can bury us. Even so, the thousand cares of each day can insulate us from the stupendous excellencies of Christ, causing us to begin a deadly drift. A follower of Jesus. Are you drifting? Allow me to point out some application of my own. One of the ways that I think we can pay more careful attention is by attending to matters of biblical literacy. That, that we're in the Word. That we're studying the Scripture. Read the Word. Obey the Word. Let your meditation both day and night be on the living Word of God. And as you saturate your life with Scripture and find your thirst quenched in its waters, you will find a love that Jesus Christ, for Jesus Christ that remains incomparable to any other pursuit in your life. Another tool to keep the ship held straight is good theology. Uh, Hebrews mentions the things that we have heard and part of what we have heard includes sound doctrine. There are a lot of us that like our guideposts Christianity. We, we like some warm, fluffy, you know, a thought for the day type stuff. And, and those are good and encouraging many times. But, but we have, some of us avoid some of the theology and the doctrine that, that we need to understand in order to stay within sound doctrine. Too many of us are drifting off course because we're not even paying attention to what we believe about the very person that we love. Our God. Our Lord Jesus Christ. And so don't, don't use the excuse. I'm just not smart enough to understand that doctrine stuff. Don't use the excuse of I'm too old for that or I've done my turn. I'm retiring from it all. My friends, theology means... What we say about God. That's what the word means. What we say about God. Doctrine just means teaching. And if you are in a relationship with someone, your wife, your best friend, your children, it is, is it not of vital importance that you think rightly about the person that you love? How much more so than our relationship with our God? And that's what theology is. It's, it's learning who He is and, and what He says about Himself and what He says about us. And so we should be pressing ourselves on these things. I would encourage you, find, find some things that you're, that you're not comfortable with. Some words that are too big to understand, you thought. And then discover the depth that's in there. You don't have to memorize all those words, but, but look at what Scripture says about them and, and, and grasp the concepts. There's a great danger of drifting because we're just, not, we're just not paying a close enough attention. Now, the author of Hebrews is going to use another teaching tool of the rabbis as we continue through our passage to get his point across regarding verse 1. And in doing so, he's going to show why this application is so important in the middle of this discussion about angels. And we haven't talked about that yet today in verse 1. But he's getting there. See, by the time you get to the end of chapter 1, it should be so clear that Jesus Christ is superior to the angels in everything. He's superior to anything that all the hosts of heaven have to offer. And having established that in the first chapter, he's going to, he's going to move to what the rabbis called a lesser to greater argument. It's something that's used in court cases even sometimes. And uh, Guthrie, uh, the Bible teacher, describes it like this. He says, the argument from lesser to greater says that when something is true in a lesser situation, it certainly is true in a greater situation and has greater implications. Let me say that again. An argument from lesser to greater says that when something is true in a lesser situation, a less important situation, it certainly then is true in a more important situation. Among the, <clears throat> sorry, I'm skipping his words. In a more important situation or a greater situation, and it has greater implications. 
And so in verse 2, he points out that the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, he says. And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. That word for um, uh, disobedience there, it means to just not pay attention, to not listen, to not care about what's being said. And, And here's what he means by all this when he's talking about the angels proving reliable. He's pointing to um, Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2. And Moses, in that passage, he, he drops a statement. It, it looks like a throwaway line. And he hints within this passage, in his farewell address to the Jewish people, he hints in this address that there were a multitude of angels that were present at the top of Mount Sinai. He doesn't say it explicitly. He doesn't go into detail about it. He just briefly mentions it, and he keeps on going on. And so there's this idea that the angels were there on Sinai when God gave the law. Now that one phrase is going to become a topic of great discussion in first century Judaism. Among the Jews, they are going to talk about that one little verse a lot. Why? Because they like talking about angels. Especially as the further west in the Roman Empire you go, these Jewish communities seem to be fascinated with this topic of angels. Now, the New Testament is going to pick up on that. The New Testament writers and the New Testament preachers are familiar with this discussion taking place, and guess what the New Testament writers do? They agree with it. They back it up. And so, and so when you're looking through the New Testament, they confirm that yes, the angels did play a part in declaring the message of the Old Testament. Stephen, remember Stephen when he's about ready to be stoned to death? He gives this beautiful sermon in Acts chapter 7 and I think 8. Uh, is when he's when he's he's martyred, becomes the first martyr of the church, and, and Stephen is going to mention in his sermon in Acts chapter seven that an angel spoke with Moses on top of the of Mount Sinai, and then Paul is going to also refer to the angels serving as messengers in the giving of the law in Galatians chapter three verse nineteen. You can write down these references and look them up later on if you'd like to, but what Hebrews is now is going to do is also going to hint at that same event. But here's the question that Hebrews asks, is asking us. What happened in the Old Testament? What happened in the Old Testament when people broke God's law that had been declared through intermediaries that were angels? What happened to them? It wasn't good, was it? You see, very soon after the giving of the law, we come to the book of Numbers. And um, let me just give you a couple examples. Uh, one of the laws that God gave to the Jewish people was to keep the Sabbath. The Sabbath was His sign for Israel. The Sabbath was, uh, just, just like the circumcision was a sign for the descendants of Abraham, Sabbath was a sign that identified Israel and God said, these are My people and you'll be identified by keeping the Sabbath. And when people ask you why you're so different in this, it's because you are Israel. And He commanded them to keep the Sabbath forever. And so the Sabbath was a sign and it marked that the people were His. And God tells them, don't cross me on this one. That's my paraphrase. Soon after the law was given, do you remember what happened? There was a guy. He went outside. And he picked up sticks on the Sabbath day. He goes out and he gathers firewood, I suppose. He gathers sticks on the Sabbath and so... The people recognize that he has broken the law that God had just given them recently. And so he's arrested, he's held, and then they say, what should we do? And the Lord says, put him to death. Stone him outside the camp. I told you, this is serious. And my law is to be taken with great gravity and respect. And so they did. A couple chapters later, in, in Numbers chapter 25, it records that the Israelites were led astray by, in the wilderness. Remember the talking donkey and Balaam and all that? Right after that, after he, he basically sells Israel out. And uh, Jude lets us know that he, he, he said, you know, I, I can't curse them, but tell you what, you send the ladies down there with a whole bunch of idols and you cause the people to sin, and God will punish them Himself. And so that's what they did. And so the Moabite women came into the camp and they, had, they basically had this big party. And um, in the process, it involved breaking two of God's commandments. There was a lot of sexual immorality and a lot of worshiping of idols. And so God sent a plague 
And 24,000 people died. Most of them on one day. Now, now this is the kind of judgment that took place when the Old Testament saints disregarded God's Word that was declared through what? Through angels. They were the messengers that brought the Word to Moses apparently on top of Mount Sinai in some form or another. God's presence was there and, and there was the tablets and all those other things. But a large part of that came through angels, we learn. And so let me ask you, who declared God's Word in the New Testament? Beginning of Hebrews, remember what it said? In these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. Now, we've just spent an entire chapter stringing pearls that show us how much greater the Son is than the angels. And so with that, our preacher friend, Hebrews, is going to ask a very uncomfortable question to us. If Jesus is greater than the angels, and God punished sin in such a way for those that drifted away in the Old Testament and disregarded His law, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? If God had the Israelites stone a man for picking up sticks, and if God killed 24,000 of His people because His holiness was that important, and obedience to His law was that serious, because He took His Word that came through the angels with such gravity, then what is to happen to you and to I if we neglect the message of salvation that has come to us through His Son, Jesus Christ? Now, now, I want you to understand. I want to point out, Hebrews is not talking about losing your salvation. That's, that's not what's at issue here. But for those who have rejected Christ and His message, understand the gravity of God's wrath and what it means to receive the wages of your sin for eternity. Understand the gravity of the consequences of your sin. And for those who are redeemed, you have received this great salvation. How dare we justify our laziness by saying that the penalty of our sin has been paid how dare we excuse our neglect of the things that we've heard because eternity is already ours do you not understand the gravity and the consequences of letting the boat drift away I've thought a lot about what are the consequences here for believers. And we can go off in some different directions that we're learning. You know, he talks about disciplining his children. But Hebrews doesn't go there. Remember, he's a preacher. He's applying it, and he's going to let your mind go where it needs to. And we just need to understand that we may not know what those consequences could be. For some of us, he takes us home and says, that's enough, I'm done. And his discipline goes that far. I've known people died at a very young age, and I think a lot of it was because God said that's it. I remember for me, I was drifting away my freshman year of college at Moody Bible Institute. I was so engrossed in my studies and, and busy. My spare time was playing 3D Tetris. I wasn't reading God's Word one bit. Just my assignments. But that was just because I had to. My relationship was drifting away. And uh, I was struggling. I came home from college that summer and um, I got T-boned. Drove my parents' car. Almost couldn't go back to Moody Bible Institute because insurance issues and this and that. God in His grace opened up doors. But he did what he, a loving father does. Is he, he got my attention. It took, it took a two-by-four to the side of my head. But because he loved me, what does it take for God to get us our attention? What are the consequences of me drifting away? 
some of those consequences, my friends, it's not just what happens in your own life, but it's your children, your grandchildren. And we drift away at the expense of the next generation. And it is our children who will spend eternity separated from a, a God who loved them and gave them their son, but because we drifted. Hebrews doesn't detail what the consequences are. But his point should leave the question lingering in our minds. And it should beckon us to pay closer attention to His revealed Word and to our relationship with Him. Now, he's not quite done with us. He's not quite done. Because the author of Hebrews is writing this late enough in the first century that it's already been 30 or 40 years after Jesus has ascended and gone to heaven. The author of Hebrews may not have ever met Jesus personally. Probably didn't. And his audience probably had a question in the back of their minds just like you might almost 2,000 years later. They may have been thinking, but Apollos, Paul, whoever you are that's writing this, we haven't seen Jesus. You're talking about hearing Jesus and hearing His words, but we haven't actually met Him. We never saw Him. I mean, yes, we have a personal relationship with Him and He saved us, but we weren't there to witness the things that He did and the things that He said. Any of you thinking that as we're going through this chapter 1? The thought is there. And Hebrews recognizes that. He, he recognizes this, this. The author of Hebrews is aware of the, uh, of the passage of time and, and we are becoming further and further distanced from those who heard Christ with their own ears. And so in verse three, verses 3 and 4, he's going to expound what he means by God speaking to us by His Son. And he does this in three steps. Again, remember we're in a courtroom now. We're, we're off the boat and we've moved into the courtroom and he's, he's arguing the case. First, he repeats that this great salvation was first declared by His Son. That's consistent with what Jesus Himself said. John chapter 14-16, through 16, He said a few times when He's with the disciples that He was speaking these things to Him while He was still with them. He also promised the Holy Spirit, another helper of the same kind. And so, God revealed Himself in a far superior way in the, than in the Old Testament by sending Jesus to show us the Father. But then after Jesus ascended into heaven, step two of His plan takes effect. He says, then it was attested to us by those who heard. And so those who were eyewitnesses confirmed the message of this great salvation that came through Jesus. And not only did they go around the Roman Empire preaching the Gospel, but they also recorded these words in four Gospels, in many letters, in the book of Acts, and then also the book of Revelation, which is... Jesus showing us one of these eyewitnesses what will happen when he returns. Listen to how the Apostle John expresses these things in his first epistle. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1-4. through He says, "...that which was from the beginning, which we have heard..." So here he's talking about the apostles. "...which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the Word of life..." That, that's Jesus he's talking about. We touched Him. We saw Him. We heard Him. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life with which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And so John and Hebrews both tell us that not only did Jesus announce God's Word, not only was He the living Word, but also the apostles and the prophets of the early church laid a foundation for the church by confirming God's Word through His Son. And this included the writings of the New Testament which have been miraculously preserved for us today. A message which not only gives us information about salvation, but a message which has brought salvation to us. And then furthermore, thirdly, God bore witness. We're in this courtroom and He's, he's announced His Son. He's announced those who testified. And now God gets up to the stand. And He swears no. God swears and says, um, he testifies rather, 
God bears witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. And so if you look at the events of what was happening in the church in those decades immediately after the church began at Pentecost, during the period that the apostles were confirming the message that was given to them by Jesus, they went out and they performed miracles just like Jesus had. There were great signs that accompanied their preaching. There were wonders that people saw and they were in awe. And in addition to this, the Holy Spirit distributed gifts within the church that testified to the message of the church. I believe particularly he's talking about the sign gifts of miracles. Foreign tongues were spoken. Prophecy. Now, now all this, it doesn't mean that there aren't any miracles today. That, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that the miraculous doesn't happen because God still steps into our world and He breaks the laws of nature from time to time. There are instances when our God clearly goes outside the boundaries of, of normal laws of the universe which He has set up. But what Hebrews is particularly addressing in our passage is that during the ministry of Jesus and during the ministry of the apostles, there was a display of these signs that was normative for their ministry. A regular occurrence unlike anyone had ever seen in the history of man and hasn't seen in the same way before since. And the purpose of these signs that Joel 2 prophesied and that, that Peter picks up on and he, he talks about at Pentecost, the purpose of these signs and wonders was that God was testifying that His witnesses who were sharing the Gospel, the apostles and the prophets, that what they said was true. God is on the stand and He testifies on their behalf. And He does so and did so through these miracles. So in summary, Hebrews is telling these early followers of Jesus that even though they themselves did not witness the ministry of Jesus, and many of them never even met the apostles, still they were living in these last days when God has spoken to us by His Son. And today, 2,000 years later, you, have, you also are in those days, those last days in which He has spoken to us by His Son. The Holy Spirit is still at work among us. And He has preserved His Word so that 2,000 years later, you have a gift. Every single one of you have a gift that not one person during the age of the apostles and the days of the early church, not one of them experienced what you have today. You have a complete copy of all 27 books of the New Testament. It would be decades from the writing of Hebrews before anybody in the church could probably claim that they had all 27 books of the New Testament in one collection. That would have been unbelievable for them. The whole New Testament? All of it? You have the entire New Testament? Can I see it? The apostles would have been mind-blown. Really? Can I see it? And each one of you hold a copy right there in your hands. You probably have multiple translations on your phone. You can pull up on the internet anytime you want. No one had that. And not only do we have all 27 books of the New Testament, but you also have all 39 books of the Old Testament. And you don't even have to go to a synagogue to pull the scroll out and find the verse you want. This isn't a claim that we can say that our church has one copy and you can read that if you come in in person sometime. But God has given you the privilege of living in a time when every single one of us has access to the Word of God in a way that is unparalleled throughout human history. God's Word that was brought to us by His Son Jesus Christ and testified by the apostles and prophets and that God bore witness of through miracles that He faithfully preserved in these words which they handed down to us that people have spilled their blood over so that you could have a, your own copy. God has given you that privilege that still brings the message of such a great salvation. So my friends, let us pay closer attention. Let us pay closer attention to what, we've, what we hear. Let us be those who read. Let us be those who study. 
Let us be those who never cower away from theology and a desire to know the God that we love. Let us be those who meditate on His words that were spoken to us by His Son. And may it not be said of any of us that we drifted away because we neglected so great salvation. Father God, we thank You for these words in this book. We thank You that You have not left us without a witness of Your grace. We thank You for how You used these men to write down these words that Your Holy Spirit moved them along so that what they wrote, even though it was in their own personality and their own vocabulary with their own education, Lord, that You gave them these words and Your Holy Spirit moved them along so that they are Your words. They are words spoken to us by the Son. By those who testified of the things that He said. By those who were witnesses to His life and to His ministry. We thank You for these words that convict, that correct, that teach, that train us in righteousness so that we might be equipped today for every good work for the man of God. Father, I pray for my friends here today. I know some of us are drifting right now. I know some of us are struggling. We've lost sight of a few things. I thank You for Your grace. I thank You for Your patience with us. But Lord, we know we know how, how serious You take sin. And we know how much greater Jesus Christ is than the minister of the angels. And if, if the Old Testament was taken so seriously, how much more so the Word that has been brought to us by Jesus Christ. So let us see the greatness of the salvation that we have. And might our anchor hold firm. Amen.